This audio lecture is based entirely upon the case book Computer Aided Exercises in Civil Procedure by Roger C. Park and Douglas D. McFarland. The case book is published by Cali E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Share Alike 3.0 Unported. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format, and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit, don't use the material for commercial purposes, and redistribute the contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Civil Procedure Lectures. This is part eight, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about evidence for civil procedure. This lecture is to provide a survey of the rules of evidence in order to give you a deeper understanding of subjects studied in the civil procedure course. The intent here is to provide a rudimentary understanding of evidence law as it relates to civil procedure. So, some basic evidence rules. The federal rules of evidence were first adopted for the federal courts in 1975 and have since provided the pattern for evidence rules in a majority of states. Federal Evidence Rule 602 provides the following, quote, A witness may not testify to a matter unless evidence is introduced sufficient to support a finding that the witness has personal knowledge of the matter. Evidence to prove personal knowledge may, but need not, consist of the witness's own testimony, end quote. The rule prevents a lay witness from testifying about an event that could be perceived by the senses unless the witness actually perceived the event. For example, if the first question asked to a witness were, state the color of the defendant's car, the question would be objectionable because the examiner has failed to produce any evidence that the witness actually saw the defendant's car. The witness's answer might be based on guesswork or second-hand information. If the witness saw the car personally, then the examining lawyer must lay the foundation by having the witness so testify. The personal knowledge requirement is analytically distinct from the hearsay rule. If a witness makes an assertion about a fact that can be perceived by the senses and does not purport to base her knowledge on another's statement, then the correct objection is lack of personal knowledge. If the examiner cures the personal knowledge problem by having the witness testify that she read or heard an out-of-court statement that asserted the fact in question, then the correct objection is hearsay. For example, Suppose that to prove when a train arrived, a witness testifies, the train arrived at 8.05.
if there is no evidence that the witness was in a position to observe the train, then the testimony would be objectionable on grounds that the witness lacked personal knowledge. A hearsay objection would be inappropriate because there is no indication that the witness is basing the testimony on the statement of another. Suppose then that the witness is asked how she knows and responds by saying, quote, Mr. Bailey told me that the train arrived at 8.05, end quote. The requirement of personal knowledge has now been satisfied. The witness has testified about something she perceived with her senses, that is, Mr. Bailey's statement. In the absence of a hearsay exception, however, the testimony would be inadmissible hearsay. Now moving to the hearsay rule and its exceptions. The credibility of a witness depends upon the witness's perception, memory, narrative ability, and sincerity. For example, suppose a witness testifies, I saw Smith in the bar on February 1st. The witness might have been intoxicated, nearsighted, or simply too far away to see clearly. So the statement might be inaccurate because of problems of perception. The witness might be mistaken about the date because of defects in memory. The witness might have misspoken, as by saying bar while meaning car. So that poor narrative ability made the utterance misleading. Or the witness might be intentionally lying. When a witness testifies in court, the witness is under oath, subject to cross-examination, and present for observation of demeanor by the trier of fact. These safeguards are thought to increase the likelihood that the witness will try to tell the truth and that defects in credibility will be exposed to the trier. The hearsay rule is grounded on the belief that sometimes too much credence will be given to statements made in situations in which these safeguards are absent. Not every out-of-court statement is hearsay. Under the federal rules, hearsay is a statement made out of court that is offered for the purpose of proving the truth of what is asserted in the statement. An in-court statement, that is, a statement made by the witness while testifying, is not hearsay. And an out-of-court statement is not hearsay if it is offered in evidence for some purpose other than proving the truth of the matter asserted in the statement. This lecture is not the place for discussion of all of the various meanings that have been imputed to the phrase, truth of the matter asserted. However, most such utterances fall within the following three categories. One. Statements offered to show their effect on the reader or hearer. Suppose that a defendant is charged with burglary of a neighbor's garage. As an alternate explanation of why he was in the garage, the defendant testifies that a child told him that an intruder was in the garage and asked him to investigate. The child's statement is not hearsay if offered solely for the purpose of showing why the defendant entered the garage statement is not being offered to show its truth, that is, that an intruder was in fact in the garage. 
but only to show its effect on the hearer. Even if the child was lying or mistaken, the statement still has value in explaining the defendant's conduct. Two, legally operative language. To show that A made a contract with B, testimony is offered that A said to B, I will pay $40,000 for 100 carloads of your widgets. And B responds with, I accept your offer. Testimony about these utterances is not hearsay. The mere fact that they were made created a legal relationship. Under the objective theory of contracts, even if A or B is not credible. Consequently, the utterances are said not to be offered for their truth, but merely to show that they were made. And third, statements used indirectly. Suppose A tells B that C committed a crime, and the words are offered to show that A does not like C. Under traditional analysis, A's utterance is considered not to be hearsay when offered for the purpose of showing A's dislike for C. The truth of the statement does not matter. In fact, if the statement is false, the inference may be stronger evidence that A dislikes C. Utterances like these are often characterized as circumstantial evidence, which is another way of saying that they are not offered directly to show their truth, but indirectly to show something else. One important category of indirect utterances are those that are offered as prior inconsistent statements for the purpose of impeaching a witness. Suppose a bystander tells an investigator prior to trial that a traffic light was red and then testifies at trial that it was green. The bystander's prior statement is not hearsay when offered solely to impeach credibility. The statement under traditional analysis, is not being offered to prove the truth of its assertion, but merely to show that the witness is not credible because she said different things at different times. Even though a statement is hearsay, it is admissible if it falls under one of the exceptions to the hearsay rule. And the federal rules of evidence list nearly 30 exceptions. Now moving to relevancy. Federal Evidence Rule 402 declares that irrelevant evidence is inadmissible. Under the federal rules, however, evidence is rarely irrelevant because Federal Rules of Evidence 401 deems evidence to be relevant if it has any tendency to make the existence of any fact that is of consequence to determination of the action more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. This definition of relevance is a broad one. Under it, almost every item of evidence that a rational lawyer might offer would be relevant. For example, evidence that a defendant had been in prior accidents tends slightly to support the inference that the defendant is not a careful driver, and then the further inference that the accident at issue was defendant's fault. The prior accidents would therefore be relevant under the definition of Rule 401. Such evidence is, however, normally excluded. In a civil case, the evidence would be inadmissible for two reasons. The evidence of other accidents is offered to prove defendant has a character trait of poor driving. 
character evidence is not admissible in civil cases. And in any event, character ordinarily may not be proved with evidence of specific acts of conduct. Even without specific rules about character evidence, however, the evidence may be inadmissible because of Rule 403. Federal Rule of Evidence 403 provides that, quote, although relevant, evidence may be excluded if its probative value is substantially outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice, confusion of the issues, or misleading the jury, or by considerations of undue delay, waste of time, or needless presentation of cumulative evidence. End quote. Rule 403 is not the only rule designed to prevent the introduction of evidence that is prejudicial or a waste of time. It is merely the most general one. The federal rules of evidence also set forth specific rules for certain recurring situations in which the balance of probative value and prejudicial effect tips in favor of exclusion. Now moving to the opinion rule. There are two aspects of the rule limiting the admission of opinion testimony by lay witnesses that are non-expert witnesses. First, the lay witness must not express an opinion about something that requires special skill, knowledge, or education. For example, a lay witness could not testify that the injury she received caused her to develop cancer. Second, Lay witnesses are sometimes prevented from expressing opinions even about matters that require no special skill. For example, a lay witness would not ordinarily be permitted to testify that one of the parties in an accident was driving negligently and the other was not. The evidence would be excluded on grounds that the testimony in that form would not be helpful to the trier of fact. The jury, not the witness, should decide whether the driver was negligent. In making the determination, the jury would be helped by specific testimony about what the driver was doing, but not by the witness's conclusion of negligence. Now moving to the best evidence rule. Suppose that the wording of a written contract is of significance in a lawsuit. May the party relying on the contract prove its contents with oral testimony. If not, may a copy of the writing be introduced in lieu of the original. As common law, the best evidence rules supplied the answer to these questions. Generally, it required the proponent to produce the original writing or to make an acceptable excuse for not having it. Neither oral testimony nor a copy was admissible in the absence of an excuse for not presenting the original. The Federal Rules of Evidence contain a version of the Best Evidence Rule, although it does not use the term Best Evidence Rule. The rule retains a general preference for the original while taking into account improvements in methods of copying. Federal Rule of Evidence 1002 provides the basic rule of exclusion, stating that except where otherwise provided by rule or statute, to prove the content of a writing, recording, or photograph, the original writing, recording, or photograph is required. Rule 1004 deals with other situations in which the original is not required, 
similar to the common law allowance to offer other than the original of the writing with an adequate excuse for not producing the original. Basically, the rule provides that the original is not required when the person offering evidence of its contents shows a good cause for not producing the original. That is, the original is missing or unobtainable. In these circumstances, other evidence of the contents of the original, including oral testimony about what the document said, is admissible. Non-production because the proponent has lost or destroyed the original in bad faith is not accepted as a good excuse. And finally, leading questions. On direct examination, a lawyer ordinarily may not lead the witness by asking a question that suggests the desired answer. Thus, was defendant wearing a green plaid jacket would be improper. What was the defendant wearing would not. Leading questions are permitted on cross-examination, except in relatively rare situations in which the witness being cross-examined is strongly partial toward the cross-examiner. Accordingly, cross-examination of a witness with questions such as, isn't it true that the robber's face was completely covered, would ordinarily be permitted. Indeed, good cross-examination may be all leading questions. There is little danger that the witness will be overly influenced by suggestive questions on cross-examination. And in any event, leading questions may be the only way to examine an uncooperative witness. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.